0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Carpet City Cinema, the Gila Films podcast. I'm David Weaver. Uh, thanks for joining us after I had to take another week off last week, just really busy stuff going on, but we are back with some uh, Really incredible news because we talked to Jay Leonard, uh, producer of The Last Frankenstein, director of many a feature of his own. We talked to him a couple weeks ago about his latest film, Break Glass. And one of the things we mentioned on that podcast, that he was running a crowdfunding campaign over at Indiegogo to raise funds to send his producer, Sean Barnes, and leading man, Ricky DeRosa out to California so they could in person attend the NoHo Cinefest, which of course is a great opportunity being a Hollywood festival for the film to get some extra eyes on it, and a great opportunity for those team members to uh, market the film and promote it. The goal of that campaign was $1,500. And I don't believe they have met the goal as of that recording we did with Jay, but happy to say that they are past the goal now. They've raised $1,637, 109% fulfilled. So that's uh, really great to hear, great for the film, great for their their whole team. The campaign still has 11 days left. And be assured that uh, if you haven't given yet and you're interested to do so, you still can because any funds above and beyond their initial goal are just going to go right back into the movie because obviously... To uh, to continue its festival run requires some more submissions, more festival entry fees, um, to attendees fees. Uh, I mean, sorry, to attend any festivals obviously costs money: uh, train tickets, plane tickets, gas. So any of these f- uh, additional funds beyond the fifteen hundred dollars will go right back into uh, the film. So if you can, in the next eleven days, uh, just uh, donate to that campaign. You can find the link over at the Facebook page for the film, which is Break Glass Movie, or you can just head over to Indiegogo. The name of the campaign is Break Glass Heads to Hollywood. So either way, any support, much appreciated, even if you just spread the word about it. We just had some very exciting news regarding another uh, member of Team Last Frankenstein, and that is none other than our beloved uh, Robert Dix, who, of course, is a veteran cult film actor who played uh, the patriarch of the Frankenstein family in our film and then sadly passed away a few years ago. Bob had been in countless movies throughout his uh, many decades in front of the camera. And uh, sadly, some of those films uh, have not been seen in a long time. Either they haven't been licensed or they're considered lost films, whatever reason. Um, And it was really exciting to hear the news that one of those lost films has been uh, rediscovered and restored by none other than Vinegar Syndrome which if you're not familiar with them they're a we've talked about them here in the past they're a, a physical media company uh and a restoration company they uh, have put they put just countless uh cult films out on blu-ray um and they just announced this new box set called vinegar syndrome's lost picture show it's a, a 10 movie set that's been in the works for some time now uh, and consists of 10 cult films which have been considered lost up until this point. And the one that Bob is in is uh, from 1968, and it's called Las Vegas Strangler. Uh, it was also known as No Tears for the Damned. And uh, this was a, a film in which Bob, he played the title character. It uh, was shot, uh, not too surprisingly, in Vegas. And Bob also worked behind the scenes on the movie. He uh, and Breanne Murphy... Uh, who he was uh, going out with at the time, both uh, worked on the production and the film as well. Now, if you're not familiar with Breanne Murphy, uh, prior to uh, her involvement with Bob, she had been married to legendary cult filmmaker Jerry Warren. Uh, she also went on to become actually a, a rather successful uh, cinematographer. And uh, so Bob plays the title character in this movie. And you know, just a few years ago, I was talking with someone on Facebook from the Vegas area. I think it was like a reporter. And I don't even know how this conversation started. I think I was maybe just trying to do some research about this movie because Bob talks about it in his autobiography and uh, just trying to find out if there's any hope that uh, there's anything left of this film. Um, And this reporter I was talking to also was just kind of convinced that there must be copies of it around somewhere. He he was kind of looking for on his end. I think uh, he had done some kind of profile. I don't think it was on Bob. It was somehow connected. I think it was a a profile on someone else who had worked on the movie from the Vegas area. So this box set, uh, which comes out in November, um, also includes nine other movies, uh, Beware the Black Widow, Deep Inside, directed by the great Joe Sarno, uh, Albert Zugsmith's Violated, uh, Barbara, directed by Vi- uh, by uh, Walter Burns, uh, Red Midnight, directed by James Newslow; Titus Moody's The Last of the American Hobos, Carlos Tobolina's What's Love, Charles Nizette's The Sex Serum of Dr. Blake, which is the original cut of the film Voodoo Heartbeat, and Don Greer's as in the words of Vinegar Syndrome's promotional material, quote, dropping and unnerving kitty film and musical The Rare Blue Apes of Cannibal Isle, end quote. And this box set will also include a feature-length documentary by Elijah Drenner called Against the Grain, which, quote, examines how the genre film-focused home video companies have taken the charge in preserving restoring and releasing so many works which otherwise might have been lost to time end quote um, if you head over to Vinegar Syndrome's website you can pre-order the set now and there's a trailer there also available on their YouTube channel which uh, shows a nice a nice little dosing of uh, clips from Las Vegas Strangler with Bob front and center you know, uh, Bob passed away in 2018 so I tend to doubt even though this, this set has been in the works for a while but I don't think my guess is that he wasn't involved in any of the extras I could be wrong though hopefully I am um but just obviously really uh curious to see what they might have in the way of bonus features because it's a pre-order uh they just don't really have too many details about uh, any extras on the set yet but um just really excited to finally see this happening to see uh, a major piece of his work a uh, film in which he had the lead role Uh, finally get back in the limelight. I know some other films of his. He did a movie called The Eleventh Commandment in the early 60s, which is a lost film. Um, And he's done movies like The Road Hustlers and uh, Wild Wheels, which, um, and also another one, Soul Soldier, which they might not necessarily be lost, but they just never had any releases or any legitimate or decent quality releases. So this is another one to mark off the list. Las Vegas Strangler, 1968. And while we're on the subject of film restorations, another uh, piece of news that dropped in the last week is that uh, a film, which I one of my favorite silent films, is finally going to be restored, and that is the 1926 film, The Bat. So what is The Bat? Well, let's uh, take it back a few steps. Mary Roberts Reinhart uh, was an author who was considered the American Agatha Christie, um, very popular writer. And her first novel, published in 1908, was a uh, mystery book titled The Circular Staircase. This was a a huge hit, this book. In 1915, it was adapted into a feature film, uh, which ended up being the uh, first uh, on-screen adaptation of one of Reinhardt's works. And again, the success of this was so big, of of this novel, that Reinhardt collaborated with an author by the name of Avery Hopwood to adapt it as a play which came out in 1920, and that was titled The Bat. And they had made some various changes to the original novel, some character names, but the biggest change was that they added this title character, this mass criminal, The Bat. In 1926, a novelization of the play was published. It was credited to Reinhardt, but it was in fact written by the famous author Stephen Vincent Bonnet. And that was the same year that this film we're talking about, The Bat, came out. Now, uh, following Uh, this adaptation, there were two subsequent adaptations. Uh, Now, the 1926 version was directed by Roland West, and in 1930, West tackled the material again as a sound film. He changed the title to The Bat Whispers, and that movie starred uh, Chester Morris, who was a very popular actor in the 1930s, uh, Academy Award-nominated leading man. In the 40s, he became uh, known for the Boston Blackie films. And then, probably one of the most famous versions of this a story, the best known one, is the 1959 version, titled The Bat, which stars Vincent Price and Agnes Moorhead, and which uh, Film Masters will be releasing on Blu-ray, a restored version of that soon. But back to the 1926 version, um, yeah, I, I remember years ago, I forget, let's see how old I was, probably about maybe 11 or 12, uh, we used to have this uh, physical media store nearby called a Saturday Matinee. It was about minutes away in this uh this mall called the Rotterdam Square Mall and I don't know how big of a chain that was Saturday matinee but uh I remember what time I can't remember if I had gift cards for there or if it was like a birthday and I was just told I could buy so much stuff um the cool thing about them was that they didn't have actually like paper gift cards or certificates they give you coins but I remember I had $40 I could spend at um the store and I picked out the uh this is back in the VHS days. So I picked out the 1940 Green Hornet film serial, the two tape set put out by VCI. That was $30. Um, and then uh, with the remaining $10, I found this two tape set. And on it, it had this drawn picture of Batman. And the one tape wa- on it was the- called Bat Clips. And it was just a bunch of like assemblage of Batman related stuff, stuff related to the 1960s TV show. Like, uh, there was like a commercial on it and clips from a new from a, a talk show. But the other tape was The Bat, the 1926 movie. So on the front of the box was a picture of Batman, an illustration of him that said it was drawn by Bob Kane. And on the back of the box where they had the uh, plot descriptions of what was on the tape, it said, and um, I've got it right here. I'm looking at a copy on eBay. I no longer have my VHS copy. But it says here, quote, it has been suggested, but not confirmed, that this film inspired Bob Kane to create Batman. Could the Bat really have been the original Batman? End quote. And there is some truth to that, although my understanding is that according to Bob Kane's autobiography, it was actually the 1930 version, The Bat Whispers, that um, really is the, one, the version of this that... Uh, and it may have put some uh, th- thoughts in the back of his head about creating the Batman character. Though I have heard elsewhere that maybe it's the 26th version. Either way, um, there is this understanding that, among many things, this was also the story, this overall story of the Bat, this character of the Bat, did play some part in influencing uh, Bob Kane to uh, bring about that character to life. Now, this film had been considered a lost movie uh, for some time, and it was only in the 80s that a, uh, a print was discovered, and the, this was the only release of that print uh, that I know of on VHS. Uh, I don't know how authorized it was. Um, the quality was not great, uh, which it was put out, this VHS was put out by Scimitar, which, you know, no disrespect to them. They weren't really known all of the time for the best quality tapes. They, but I have to give them props because they also did release a Creature from Black Lake on a VHS back in the day. That's how the, I first saw that. And they were, as we have talked about here before, the only company to have ever uh, uh, legitimately released UFO Target Earth with their VHS of that. And uh, Cemetery even made it into the DVD era, actually, believe it or not, for really briefly. Um, but uh, one of the things that kind of makes me dubious about th- this release is that the music score, which is very effective, uh, is actually uh, Jerry Goldsmith's mo- music crib from the Twilight Zone. So I don't know if they actually got permission for that. Um, and there, this... This can be found actually on a milk, one of the Mill Creek DVD sets or a couple of different Mill Creek multi-sets, um, the film, but that's just basically, it's just a DVD riff of the same tape because it has the same, uh, has tracking, you know, lines on it and the same Goldsmith score. But the whole premise of the bat is about this uh, rich woman who uh, is uh, taking up uh, temporary residence in this giant mansion with her maid. Uh, and the mansion is owned by this really rich banker, who, uh, unbeknownst to her, has uh, robbed his bank. And at the same time uh, that he's engaged in this criminal activity and there could be uh, uh, some hidden treasure of his, hidden wealth of his somewhere on this estate, there's also this criminal known as the Bat who uh, is not afraid to commit uh, murder and robbery to achieve his ends. He's on the loose, on the prowl. And um, it's just like a really classic, uh, you know, old dark house kind of storyline where all these characters like... Um, her niece, this rich woman's niece, and uh, the niece's boyfriend, who's been uh, falsely accused of robbing the bank that the actual the wealthy banker actually robbed, and a detective, and there's a butler, and all these people kind of just converge on this location uh, as the bat is out and about, and we don't know his true identity because he's wearing this mask, which I love. Uh, I love the mask, and I love the whole get up they give him with like a trench coat. It's just great, like Art Deco, and that's you know I the thing about silent movies, silent movies I look at like any other type of film in terms of period, genre, nationality, anything. There's good ones, there's bad ones, or maybe I shouldn't say bad ones I don't like. The though is by far one of my favorite silent films. It's incredibly stylish. It takes, um, you know, that basic premise, you know, people assembled in a dark and scary place where some of them are getting murdered and there's evil about. And that's something you can kind of just walk through the paces on, uh, that kind of storyline. But, these people really, who made this film really in the style. A big part of that is uh, the production design of this film was done by the legendary William Cameron Menzies, who's arguably one of the most famous, if not the most famous, production designers of his time period. Uh, just, you know, he did Gone with the Wind, um, he did uh, Hitchcock's Foreign Correspondent, he did William Wyler's Dead End, he directed several films, uh, notably uh, Things to Come, the ad- H.G. Wells adaptation, and the 1953 film Invaders from Mars, which has gone to become a classic. And so the production design work in this film is is really amazing. There's some great uh, miniature work, uh, just even like stylish ways they shoot things and use the and use the title cards. There's a scene where um, a guy is confronted. He, he's at the bottom of a staircase, and at the top of the staircase, a door opens, and the shaft of light shoots down uh, from this this open doorway onto this character at the bottom of the steps. And the the unseen person at the top of the staircase, behind all this light talks to this person at the bottom of the staircase and instead of cutting to a title card with the dialogue, they, they, they put the titles over the shaft of light like at an angle. Um, it's great use of uh, shadow in this film, shadow and light. Uh, it's just a really enjoyable, entertaining, uh, technically mystery film, but absolutely with horror overtones. And this is a film that I've been long wanting to see get a good release to, you know, it's just basically, again, been stuck in this tape master hell for the last 40 some years. And it was just announced that Undercrank Productions, which is a boutique label that uh, focuses on silent movies, is actually going to be doing a restoration of this. They're going to be doing, I'm I'm looking at their campaign uh, page because they launched a Kickstarter crowdfunder to make this happen. Um, on it, they say this is the, what they're going to do: a new quote, a new two K scan of the thirty-five millimeter preservation negative um, will be made by UCA, UCLA Film and TV. Um, end quote. And uh, again, it just goes through all the other things they have planned for this. There's going to be um, a new music score for the movie. Um, I'm guessing they couldn't afford the Jerry Goldsmith <laughs> rights <So, laughs> for that. Uh, there's going to be an um, essay. It will be uh written and edited i'm sorry written and narrated by scott mcqueen who's a really famous uh film preservationist uh and the in the amount they have for this uh for their Kickstarter campaign was eighteen thousand two hundred dollars and they're already over 19 uh grand and uh they've got nine days to go but i encourage you to jump on this even though they've met their goal just because if you give at the 26 dollar level then you can get a blu-ray copy of this movie plus you'll have to pay for the shipping which Maybe it'll be available cheaper at some point than that. But I don't know. I feel like, you know, if you end up paying like $30, $31 and you're not only uh, getting a physical copy, but also playing a part in getting it restored and they'll put your name on the credits, the restoration credits, I think that's a really good deal. So you got nine days left for this, but I just cannot wait until finally uh, able to see this, um, uh, get, get the proper due. And like I said, if you're a horror fan, you would definitely be interested in this film. Uh, it's very much in in that genre as well. In terms of other films hitting physical media, uh, Warner Archives had a couple really interesting announcements with their latest batch. They're going to be putting out on Blu-ray the 1936 horror film The Devil Doll, which was uh, directed by Todd Browning, director of uh, Dracula with Bela Lugosi, and he did Freaks, which uh, Criterion is going to be putting out soon. Uh, this film that stars uh, Lionel Barrymore and Marino Sullivan This was originally released as uh, part of the sixth film Hollywood's Legends of Horror Collection that uh, Warner Brothers released back in like 2007. And uh, it's pretty cool because this is now the fourth of those films to hit Blu-ray from that set. The only two remaining are The Return of Dr. X, the highly entertaining uh, a horror film, which is the only time Humphrey Bogart made uh, a foray into that genre, and he did a fantastic job at it. Uh, despite the title, it is not related plot-wise to Dr. X. And then The Mask of Fu Manchu is Boris Karloff. Um, and so once those two get uh, get the HD lop, that set will have completely transitioned over to uh, Blu-ray. But in the film, Barrymore, who had been in um, Browning's previous uh, horror film, Mark of the Vampire, he plays this escaped convict who... Uh, Gets a hold of this uh, serum from a, a crazy scientist—a serum which can uh, um, uh, create tiny people by shrinking—and he uses it to uh, create basically an army of tiny assassins to to uh, basically take out some vengeance, uh, exact vengeance on people who had framed him. Uh, so yeah, sounds like a, sounds like a good time. <laughs> and the other one that the Warner Archives. Uh, announced uh, that must get some attention is uh, another Elvis Presley film Uh, that would be uh, his 1967 film and as a huge fan of The King I am all for as many of his movies hitting blu-ray as possible so some sad news today and that was the uh we lost actor David McCallum age 90 Uh, of course the uh, Scottish actor really first uh, hit big-time popularity with his tv show The Man From U.N.C.L.E. along with uh, Robert Vaughn playing uh Spy agents from the organization of Uncle. And uh, I didn't realize this. McCallum actually uh, got two Emmy nominations uh, for that show. He got the third Emmy nomination shortly after the show ended uh, for the critically acclaimed TV movie Teacher Teacher, then uh, continued his uh, TV presence with uh, regular, recurring actually I should say starring roles, on the series uh, Kolditz and The Invisible Man, uh, which were kind of shorter-lived shows, but then Sapphire and Steel, uh, which was on for a few years and is kind of looked at as a, a forerunner to the X-Files. But you know, a whole new generation of people have come to know him uh, via his 20-year run on NCIS. Uh, so that's just, I, you know, it's always interesting when you have someone who's has this multi-generational appeal and for very, you know, very different things. It's not like he was... Um, you know like the man from uncle lasted 50 years and that's what he's always identified that as but just with multiple generations he's known for these distinct parts to just different eras of time and uh did a lot of voice work too he was a uh, voice to alfred the butler in some of the uh, dc animated batman movies um and of course just incredible amount of films. films he was in uh you know i was as a kid, I was a huge fan of The Great Escape with Steve McQueen. Still love it, but when I was a kid, it was like my favorite movie. Um, again, still up there, but not not I wouldn't say that high. But that, I'm guessing, is probably the first movie I ever saw him in as w- playing one of the uh, escapees. And, uh, of course, he played Judas Iscariot in The Greatest Story Ever Told. Um, he was in uh, John Huston's Freud. He was in Billy Budd. Um, Frankenstein, The True Story, which of course is the 1970s uh, acclaimed uh, retelling of Mary Shelley's novel. One of my all-time uh, uh, rewatchable films. I want—I don't know if I'd say it's like my all-time favorite 70s horror films, but it's one that it's good and I really enjoy it. And it's one that I can just keep going back to is uh, the film he did called Dogs, uh, where he's teaching at this college. And uh, the, the local community is being set upon by uh, uh, dogs just who are just you know abruptly changing their behavior and becoming violent um that's just one of those movies i can like watch every week if i had to uh and then he showed up in jim winorski's the Haunting of Morella, just tons of other stuff uh was formerly married to actress jill ireland uh who uh left him for his great escape co-star charles bronson and but it's all right he uh mccallum remarried and bronson and ireland were happy ever after so hey i guess maybe it all worked out but yeah age 90 david mccallum all right, now let's move on to the movie of the week from 1961, December 1961 to be exact. It's The Seventh Commandment. So any fans of cult movies are of course familiar with the label known as Something Weird Video started by the greats and sadly late Mike Vraney way back in the VHS era and continues on through the DVD and Blu-ray era under the stewardship of uh, Mike Rainey's partner and wife, Lisa Petrucci, and of course, just one of the uh, most important and influential uh, boutique labels uh, in popular popularizing cult cinema in general, as well as such filmmakers as Herschel Gordon Lewis, um, and the works of producer Harry Novak, plus exploitation films, not just you know, not just horror and science fiction, and but also the. Uh, the exploitation genre the nudie films uh also just like <laughs> crazy kid films and drug scare films just just on and on and on um they in the blu-ray era well initially the blu-ray era they i believe were releasing titles uh through their uh, arrangement with image entertainment which is how they had done many of their dvd releases but now they've kind of been uh, licensing their properties out to various labels um, one of the main ones being uh, AGFA, the American Genre Film Archive, which is a partner label of Vinegar Syndrome. And they've just, you know, incredible work they've been doing uh, in, that, in that collaboration. Uh, I've picked up, I think, every single one they've put out <laughs> together. Um, just some amazing titles. And uh, back in the day of the DVDs, uh, with, uh, released through Image Entertainment, they put out this uh, six-movie set that was titled Weird Noir. And it consisted of six films from the 1950s and 60s, uh, lower budgeted films like so many of the uh, SWV product, uh, with a film noir bent. Now, one of these movies, uh, Stark Fear with Beverly Garland and Kenneth Toby, I had watched that uh, by way of a different DVD release and um, enjoyed it. And that's kind of, how I think, you know digging into that, that's kind of how I uh, became aware of this other release, this more comprehensive release. And it had been out of print for some time, by the time I really kind of came on the scene and became aware of it. And it took me a little while to track down a, uh, a copy. And um, after acquiring it, I probably in the last, like, yearish, I watched uh, another film on the set called Fear No More, which is really good. And uh, finally made my way to last night's movie, The Seventh Commandment. Now, uh, this was a film that was uh, of interest to me, aside from, not just aside from the fact that it was this, like, low budget in the uh, Norash film, and not just because the something weird label was attached to it. I was also interested uh, in it because of its uh, having been distributed by the company known as Crown International, Crown International Pictures, to be precise. And this was uh, an outfit that started out by distributing other people's films, uh, a huge percentage to the drive-in market. They were, uh, you know, B films, uh, exploitation films, and eventually began producing their own movies as well. And were very big throughout the uh, '60s, '70s, into the '80s. Continued to make movies uh, into the mid '90s. 1994, there they released a movie called Almost Hollywood, and that was the last film they uh, they did uh, until 2003, uh, when they uh, made a film called Malibu Spring Break, and that's the last film to date that they've made. They still exist as a company. Um but it's mainly, I believe, just, uh, I mean, it is just to, uh, act as a, uh, a caretaker of the film library. And if rumors are true, they have been going about, they're actually, the owners are now trying to sell off that library as a whole, in which case, uh, Crown International will, I think, just totally cease to exist. But, um, you know, some of the films that they released would include movies, uh, some of the better-known films they released would include movies like Horror High, uh, Stanley, the Killer Snake film, uh, the ultra-sleazy slasher movie, Don't Answer the Phone. Um, they did a pair of uh, films with this actor uh, named Peter Carpenter in the early 70s, uh, Point of Terror and Blood Mania, both of which I highly recommend. Um, but yeah, just a lot of like horror films, biker films, exploitation films. I love their product, though. I, I absolutely love their films. There's a... A consistent quality to them, a consistent ambiance to them, which is there even across the decades, even whether they're black and white films from the '60s that they did, or some of their stuff in the '70s, whether the horror, this exploitation, whether it's in-house product or stuff they picked up. And I was thinking about saying, like, "What is it? What is it that I like about them? That's that that consistent through line." I think it has to do with the fact that they are low-budget films. Absolutely, there's no getting around that, but by virtue of being low budget, they have this rawness to them, um, this energy, and also the benefit of because they're so low budget they're often being filmed on locations. Yet at the same time that they share all those uh characteristics, they also have a certain uh professionalism to them. Again, they are definitely ultra low budget movies. But they still retain this certain sense of identity as like studio product. It's like even, it's like basically as they produce their own in-house product, even though they weren't necessarily a studio in the sense that you think of like as MGM or or Universal or somebody like that, they, um, they were still bringing this consistency uh, to the work they created And also uh, through their discretionary choosing of other films to pick up, it's like they were picking out titles that just kind of fit into that same vibe. Now, this might be kind of stating the obvious. Some people Mm -hmm. might be saying, you know, uh, of course, a a studio company, a distributor is going to have, um, you know, a certain identity to their product. We know about the identity of Warner Brothers films in the 30s and MGM throughout the 40s and Universal Horror Movies in the 50s or even if you look at somebody uh, on a lower budget tier, uh, American International Pictures. But I guess with Crown International, there's just this kind of raw lived in feeling to their films, you know, partly from shooting. It's kind of like maybe the combination of shooting on locations by virtue of being low budget, but then like intercutting on location stuff with like, very obvious set work. I don't know. It's just it's just that that visual aesthetic that they bring to their films that speaks to me. They also, you know, their color films make really nice use of their palettes. There's also a certain sense of negativity of nihilism to a lot of their films and like the endings, Um, you know, downbeat conclusions to their movies, which is interesting. It's like they're operating at half the budget if even that of an American international pictures movie of the time, but they're kind of like trying to compensate for that with a screw this straight from the gutter mentality, which I love. Um, I can't recommend their stuff enough. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, many of their films have made it on to, uh, physical media. They way back, they had to deal with Rhino, put out a bunch of stuff through them, both individually and in these, they put out these two sets, the horrible horror collections. Uh, they did a whole slew of these budget packs with Mill Creek. Um, And then uh, in terms of, like, Blu-ray, Scorpion put out some of their stuff on Blu-ray, having previously done so on DVD, and Code Red, I think, put some on DVD, too. But then Vinegar Syndrome, um, they're the last ones to really get a good crack at their library, uh, putting out a a number of their titles on uh, Blu-ray. And uh, unfortunately now, because they're trying to sell the library, uh, there is no licensing being done with them at the moment. But uh, The Seventh Commandment was a film that was a, a pickup but distributed by Crown International, so that's kind of also what kind of caught my attention about this film. So like, oh, I really want. I was in the mood for something that was kind of like uh, gritty, lower budgeted, um, in your face. I saw that this was uh, a Crown International distributed title, and also, um, you know, for what the other day someone posted, a, uh, I don't know if it was a TikTok video that they shared to Facebook or how I saw it. It was a um, a short video of a faith healer like uh like a more more recent faith healer from like the 90s or something. some some you know it looked like some kind of uh you know mega church Pentecostal televangelist kind of thing you know was laying his hands on and getting people to speak in tongues and all that kind of thing um I shouldn't misspeak I don't know if he's actually a faith healer but he was he was engaging in that uh, very vibrant Pentecostal type of work and that kind of led me down a little bit of a rabbit hole watching these old videos of those kind of guys like Benny Hinn and Because I grew up in a religious household, and uh, we were, uh, you know, my family was never that persuasion. But uh, by uh, uh, by virtue of association, uh, I I did hear about these uh, kind of preachers and pastors who did these kind of things. You know, claim to heal a crippled person by uh, slapping them around or putting their hands on them or whatever. And the fact that the seventh commandment, what I had read about it, did. uh, Indicate a connection to that kind of topic, that kind of subject matter, also kind of intrigued me. So there it was. I decided time to pop out this guy and let's go with it. So the film uh, starts out with our uh, main character, Ted Matthews, played by veteran character actor Jonathan Kidd. Um, he's uh, just graduating with a BA degree from, a Knight, from Knight College. And uh, he's going off to celebrate with his blonde, bombshell, sultry chick, Terry James, played by an actress named Lynn Statton. And they go off to drive off and have some fun. Um, and unfortunately, get a little too carried away with the old kissing in the car. Uh, and end up in a car accident. And after uh, confirming that his girlfriend has survived the accident... Our Ted Matthews gets out of the vehicle and approaches the other car and sees the unconscious bloody body of the driver and overcome by guilt that he he's killed this man. He has a traumatic event, uh, a traumatic incident that just completely sends him into such a state of shock that he develops amnesia and wanders away from the scene wakes up in a field the next day, still unsure how he got here, who he is, what's going on, and finds his way to the, the parked vehicle of a traveling preacher named Noah, played by a guy named Frank Arvidson, who we'll get into more later. And Noah, he he's a true believer in the Word and of helping out uh, people in need, of you know, preaching repentance, saving souls. He's he's a good-hearted man, and he he can see that, uh, you know, Ted is, Ted Matthews is distressed and wants to help him out, help him, uh, you know, uncover what his problems are. And he notices, um, initials on his, I think there's cufflinks and tries to help him remember his identity and, you know, guessing what his name might be. And through this process, uh, you know, our, our, our dear Ted Matthews mistakenly believes his identity to be, uh, that of a Tad Morgan. And, uh, Ted slash Tad really comes under the wing of Noah and uh, still unable to remember anything that's happened before their encounter, and ends up becoming a preacher himself, an incredibly successful preacher who's able to evangelize to large congregations um, and able to uh, really bring in huge significant offerings, uh, monetary offerings, but not he's not a huckster He's now a charlatan. He truly believes in his work and is hoping to create and build this children's hospital um, with the funds that they're receiving. And he's able to do some faith healing. And it's you know, just, is just uh, incredibly passionate and uh, full of energy for this cause. And as we move on to see his progress in this, in this endeavor, we, we actually move forward years, seven years ahead to where he's this uh, successful uh, minister but meanwhile terry james his girlfriend from the accident has not had so much success uh, we find out that she actually because she had been drinking and because she was the only person in the car um because ted had wandered off with amnesia that she actually was accused of causing the car accident um and served time for it some, served some time for it and we find her now she's living in like a skid row apartment she's dating this uh uh bum of a guy named pete played by another veteran character actor john Harmon. Uh, who, you know, they're both like mutually alcoholic. Uh, he beats her. Um, and then she sees Ted/slash Tad's picture in the newspaper. And, you know, through a combination of wanting revenge on him for what she feels like is abandoning him to, uh, you know, her prison term, and also you know, seeing an opportunity through his success to extort money from him uh, because he never actually was a. Uh, you know, paid for his his crime, she decides to, uh, she decides to uh, go and meet him uh, at the church. And when she does so, uh, this actually triggers in Ted memories of what really happened. It comes back to him. The problem is, and this isn't spoilers because this is all like pretty early out of the film, He's under the impression that he killed the driver in the other ax ac- in the accident, the driver of the other car. But what we know and what Terry knows is that that didn't. That driver was not killed. He completely recovered, and Terry's able to use this as leverage over him to uh, exploit him to her own ends, financial ends. Um, and it puts Ted slash Tad in a bind because he feels that once he realizes what he did and that. Uh, he was involved in what he believes was another man's death. He feels a great moral responsibility to turn himself in, but he's torn between that and his just passionate need to finish this work that he truly believes in of building this children's hospital. And then, you know, the the anvil over him is Terry, who you know just sees him as basically um, an unending. Never dying Santa Claus, who can provide her monetary needs, and that's the setup of the film. Um, I don't want to assure. Yeah, I won't get too much more into that beyond that. What I will say is that this is a film. uh, There's, there's, there's definitely you know good and good things about this film. Good things to say about this film and things about it that, uh, for me, were problematic. But one thing that absolutely can be said about this film: never boring. Absolutely not. It is very engrossing. Um, I don't think that necessarily you're shocked by any of the events that happen as the narrative continues, but it does keep you wondering what's going to happen next. It's constantly twists and turns as um, the situation, just kind of like the complexity of the situation compounds itself as, uh, you know, Terry starts tightening the screws to Ted slash Tad as her her desire to get closer to him to exploit him begins to arouse jealousy and uh, more violent behavior in her boyfriend, Pete. And you you know as you're watching the film and you're seeing her uh you know uh, terry's uh machinations at work to try to ensnare ted um you just can't you know you are constantly you know brought into the narrative and really drawn into it to kind of wonder well, what's going to happen next what's going to happen next um so definitely it they they developed a very intriguing storyline for this film uh that constantly holds your attention from beginning to end and then when it ends it doesn't linger. It it, it knows when the story is done and it finishes the film. So it's very, uh, you know, it's, it's a well, very, in a good way, compact storyline. I think there's room, actually, if anything, to expand at the beginning of the film. Because that is one issue. One of the issues I have with the film is we meet Ted literally as he's coming out of his, you know, night college. Diploma in hand, gets in the car with Terry and uh, they get in the accident. And, you know, the thing about Terry's character is it's, we get to the understanding that she, as we see her throughout the most, throughout the bulk of the film as this, you know, alcoholic, um, you know, vampy, amoral uh, person, we get the understanding that that's how she always has been. Um, And the logical thing there, of course, is like, well, then why was she ever in a relationship with this Ted character because, you know, he's graduating with a BA in like, I think his business administration. Um, and, you know, you know I, I can understand his point of view. He's very, uh, you know, he even says it, you know, he's very, uh, much, uh, physically attracted to her, uh, but there doesn't seem to be any reason really for her to, um, know based on what we see in her relationship with pete why why was she attracted to this guy what was the draw there maybe you know it's not he, he, he's not presented as someone of great wealth or success um he's not presented as this kind of like you know he he likes to have a good time but it's not like he's presented as like the kind of a uh, you know party binge going to bender kind of guy that uh, uh her subsequent boyfriend is or that you would expect her to be around so uh, you know i think that I think that that's a a place where there was an error committed, was that they they basically set it up as this relationship between these two characters who really wouldn't, don't don't look like they would have ever been in a relationship in the first place. Um, I think actually, uh, you know, I think an interesting way to have dealt with that without really even adding to the runtime, substantially the film, would have been if they basically, uh, you know, didn't make Terry. Uh, as as having always been this kind of like party girl, uh, good time party girl. If they had maybe, you know, really injected into the storyline, the idea that her going to prison is really what kind of brought her to where she is as we meet her. Maybe that was their intention for that to be the way it came across, but it it doesn't really, it really comes across like she's always been this, the bad girl, essentially. Um, And you're really kind of left to wonder why how they ever ended up together these two people but the exploration of her relationship with pete is very, pretty fascinating i mean he's really uh you know really slaps her around uh, quite a bit in the film but it's also portrayed not in the kind of like two-dimensional like uh he doesn't no like sense that she did she you know slaps her her upside the head tells her not to, don't, don't ever do that again kind of thing like it goes beyond him just hitting her to like then them making up and showing like that um dependency that they have with each other um, she, she feels a need to have him in her life and vice versa which I found is kind of a you know, more realistic depiction of abusive relationships. Um, that sadly you know people who are in these kind of uh, uh, couples um, you know they find a need to stay together even though not only should they not be together but one if not both of them are physically jeopardizing the other. And again, I guess that kind of speaks to what I was saying before about Crown International is like the the nihilism of their work. And again, this is a pickup. This wasn't in something they produced. Um, I thought that was very uh, very interesting. I also found the the scenes of Ted Tad, Ted slash uh preaching to be um, well, not just preaching, but just like the whole his whole presence on the stage, you know, uh, you know, delivering the sermons and then, you know, bringing, uh, you know, children up onto the stage with, uh, you know, illnesses to heal them. I thought it was effective in kind of, uh, you know, portraying that, that subset of uh, Christianity. And although of course you can make the argument that there are many other religions with similar behaviors, but I thought it was effective in, uh, portraying that. And also interesting that they, uh, they weren't trying to go with the, you know, the easy way out that, you know, Tad and Noah, his, his mentor, were just hucksters. The fact that they wanted to show them as uh, true believers, um, I thought that was an interesting angle to, to go with. And I also think that those scenes with Tad preaching are some of um, the most effective Uh, aspects of Jonathan Kidd's performance. I mean, Jonathan Kidd was a veteran, 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 veteran character actor. He's in tons of stuff throughout the years. Uh, But I would have to say, I mean, don't quote me on this, I haven't gone through every one of his credits, but I have to imagine this is probably his only leading role. Uh, You know, I've seen him pop up in like Perry Mason and he's in tons of other TV shows and he's in other films too, but it's usually like super small parts. Uh, He had a pretty decent uh, supporting role in William Castle's uh, underseen horror film Macabre from 1958. But, um, yeah, I I can't imagine that. I think this is probably his only lead role that he ever had. And he has that great look for this type of character. He had a great, you know, just weary, uh, worn down look. In this film, he's playing a character who's, you know, driving himself so much to accomplish this work he feels he's called to do on behalf of, uh, you know, the uh, unrepentant and the children. Uh, You know, he's basically driving himself to the point of exhaustion. And then on top of that is... Uh, you know, as Terry comes back into his life, there's the guilt and the, uh, the the conflict there, and he has this great look to him that really sells that. He has that kind of like really, you know, draggled, uh, uh, you know, l- hard life look to him to him that really serves him well in this. You know, I think that, yeah, you know, I'm not going to say that he it is the most, uh, always the most consistently effective performance. There are definitely those points where he's you know, engaging in that preaching are where he's he's strongest. And um but even that being said, I think it's just interesting to see him in a lead role. You know, it's it would be like I don't know. I, I was gonna say Whit Bissell, but Whit Bissell did have a couple a couple lead roles. I don't know. It's just it's just really interesting to see someone who was just known as a character. I guess it'd be like seeing Byron Folger in a lead role if you know who he is. Uh it would just be of that of that nature to see this guy in that role. Now Lynn Statton, who plays Terry, this is her only film that she ever made. She had a couple, uh, she did some stage stuff, and she had a couple uh, TV uh, guest spots, but this was the only movie she was ever in. I think she's actually, you know, strongest when she's not playing into that kind of classical bad girl uh, nature. You know, if you, you, know, you always think of the femme fatales of film noir, you know, Barbara Stanwyck and Double Indemnity, and I think that, you know, those I think those moments in the seventh commandment where she's trying to lean into that kind of characterization are the, are probably the weaker parts just because I think that her character, the thing that's interesting about her character is that she is so skid row that she is uh, such a character on hard times. You know, again, like I said, she's an alcoholic, basically a heavy drinker, you know, lives in this like dive apartment which is made all a little more uh, divey by the fact that it's shot on a really cheap set. And you know, she's got this horrible boyfriend uh, that she's just clingy with, uh, Dee Dee. And so, uh, you know, the idea of her being kind of like this, you know, skid row femme fatale, I think that's uh, uh, that's where uh, her character has a lot of interest, you know, seeing those moments where uh, she she wants to be with the guy who just beat her up or, you know, seeing her angry and vengeful about, you know, the time she spent in prison versus the scenes where she's just kind of like trying to be like that more sultry vampish part, which really it kind of doesn't like lend itself. It, that's kind of contradictory to the whole idea of her being Skid Row. I think, you know, you know, the idea of her being like, you know, uh, conventionally sexy and sultry and hard to resist. Uh, so I think those moments where she, she's kind of getting into the more, uh, uh, more, more, complex and nuanced aspects of her character i think that's where her performance is more effective definitely though like you know not someone who you, you don't watch this performance and think oh man I, I know why she only made one movie no she definitely had more to offer in her career and i don't know why you know because you know what what happened there with that now in terms of the other actresses before we go into them talk a little bit about the the people who made this film the director was a guy by the name of Irvin Berwick who you know, he had done a lot of work throughout uh, the 40s and 50s, Most of a lot of it at Universal uh, as a dialogue coach, dialogue director. And he had worked on like Audie Murphy Westerns and the horror movie, The Strange Door, and also another one, The Thing That Couldn't Die. I mean, he was in the, Char- the Charlton Heston film, The Private War, Major Benson, just lots of movies that he worked on as a dialogue coach. And he had made his uh, directorial debut uh, with a horror film called The Monster of Pietras Blancas, which came out in 1959. And that was made by a production company that he formed with a guy by the name of Jack K- Kavan. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right. Um, who was uh, His background was, he was a, a makeup effects artist. He had like helped, worked on Creature from the Black Lagoon, and also had been at Universal. And they produced that film uh, with their company, Van Wick Productions, uh, with uh, Berwick directing the movie and that's a if you haven't seen that it's just a it's a really great really fun uh and kind of surprisingly for its time gory uh horror film about a a creature that terrorizes this coastal community and um but is kind of uh kept at bay somewhat by the the uh efforts of a of a lighthouse keeper played by John Harmon. uh And that was the first film that Berwick made. And The Seventh Commandment would be the second one. And on this one, Kavan would uh, co-write the screenplay with Berwick for this. And then following that, uh, Berwick would go on to make such films as Strange Compulsion, uh, The Street is My Beat. Both of those came out in the 60s. And The Street is My Beat was another uh, collaboration with Jack Kavan. And then in the 70s, he would do uh, uh, two cult classic movies, Hitchhike to Hell, which Arrow released on Blu-ray, and Crown International's Malibu High. Um which Varieger Syndrome put out on Blu-ray. And he would work in other films too, like as a producer, and eventually actually uh, became a, uh, a teacher of film at UCLA. Now, I will fully confess that this is only the second of his works I've seen, Pietro Blancas being the other, and I'm very intrigued to uh, watch his other movies now. I have actually sitting in my To Watch by Malibu High and Hitchhike to Hell, and I guess uh, actually I found out that something weird video released, uh, Strange Compulsion, on uh, DVD-R, so I want to pick that up too, but I think just just off Piedras Blancas and um, and the Seventh Commandment, you know, both what those both uh, have in common is again kind of going and speaking to some of the things that Crown International had so appealing, is that certain sense of energy and rawness. I mean. One of the, you know, again, like I mentioned, the, uh, *Pietro's Block* is kind of a little more gory than most films at that time, but that's kind of the, one of the things that really stands out about it. Uh, it has a pretty strikingly designed monster in the movie, a pretty effectively designed monster, and it has really good use of locations, uh, filming on location. Um, and likewise, uh, *The Seventh Commandment*, although there is definitely some set work with like uh, Terry's apartment, also makes some nice use of some uh, location filming as well, and. That's you how know, that kind of goes hand-in-hand with being so low-budget, working as such an independent filmmaker that you're going to kind of be, you know, renting some cheap studio space when you have to and and uh, then, you know, filming on sites. But, you know, that's the thing that can really um, not be done effectively uh, in the wrong hands. And uh, I, although his work on sets is not as assured, you can definitely kind of sense that he f- Berwick feels more at home shooting on locations, that just the, the shots are more stylish and, uh, you know, the compositions are better designed as opposed to the scenes in uh, The Seventh Commandment where they're in the sets, where it's much more just, you know, shoots dead on to the set. Uh, Still, it's just interesting to see him, uh, you know, what he can bring out of a scene, the shadow location, and and the kind of, like I said, the energy, like Pietras Blancas has a lot, has has a lot of vitality to it. Um, It's, it's a very energetic uh, horror film. And likewise, uh, the Seventh Commandment, like I said, it has its own energy that kind of continually uh, engrosses you in the plot line. That's where, that's where a lot of its uh, kind of a power comes from, is, you know, constantly making you wonder what's going to happen next, despite the fact that even what happened, you know, it's not that you necessarily know what's going to happen next, but you know there's so many options, and it's not necessarily the option they choose is a big surprise, but at the same time, it keeps you guessing, it keeps you wondering. Um, now we spoke earlier, again, John Harmon, veteran character actor. He plays, uh, in the seventh commandment, he plays Pete, the abusive boyfriend and the monster of Pietras Blancas. He had played the lighthouse keeper. He ended up being, uh, collaborating numerous times in, um, Irvin Berwick's films. Uh, but uh, if you see his face, you know him from just so many things over the years. He was one of the regular actors on Perry Mason to play like, uh, you know, criminal, um, criminal experts like forensic police officers who would be called to testify. Uh, He showed up in a couple Star Trek episodes. uh, Very recognizable face, you know, just a really reliable character actor. Uh, And I guess in real life was um, the godson of Irvin Berwick's son, Wayne Berwick. Uh, Now, Wayne pops up in Piedras Blancas. He's the the boy with the limp who uh, finds a dead body and goes to tell everybody about it. And he also shows up in uh, the Seventh Commandment. He's the the crippled boy who uh, is Jonathan Kidd's character of Ted slash Tad is called upon to heal. In fact, uh, also in the credits, playing the role of a uh, the girl in the film uh, with a hearing problem, who's also uh, you know is just summoned by uh, Ted Tad to heal. Uh, the actress credited with that role is Wendy Berwick, so I'm guessing that that's probably uh, Irving Berwick's daughter. And Wayne, Wayne Berwick actually, uh, years later, went on to direct the film The Naked Monster, which is kind of like this homage-slash-parody-slash-send-ups-slash-love letter to B-movies, um, Golden Era B-movies, which features tons of uh, cult movie actors in it, of uh, them in their last roles. Now, we mentioned before that Noah was played by Frank Arvidson. Arvidson had also been in uh, Piedras Blancas. He played uh, the shop, key, the, uh, I'm sorry, the local butcher in the movie. Kocek. That was his name, Kocek, uh who's at odds with uh, John Harmon's character in the same film. And uh, that would be his first film credit. This would be his second and last. You know, I almost, this could be totally me misremembering, but I feel like he might have been, I seem to remember whether it was Bob Dorian talking about the monster of Piedras Blancas when it aired on AMC way back in the day that he might have actually been a local businessman. Like he really was like the local butcher or something when he was cast in P.H.S. because, Like I said, that was shot on a in this uh, California community, smaller California community. Um, his performance in P.H.S. blockus is rather memorable. I wouldn't necessarily say it's for the right reasons. Uh, I think he's grown a little bit in some of the scenes uh, in the Seventh Commandment where he's kind of a little bit more uh, he's one of like, those actors who's good when less is asked of him and just kind of like the matter of fact di- you know characteristic what's going on hey how you doing kind of lines and dialogue he's very realistic and very natural but then as as more is called upon him and uh the focus becomes uh, heavier on him that's when you know it's just he's just not up to the task no disrespect the man uh you know uh made a memorable uh Butcher in in Pietro's block is that that performance is uh, a highlight, one of the highlights of that film. And like I was mentioning before, uh, you know there are some striking uh, striking visual approaches in the movie, um, in the Seventh Commandment. And the the cinematographer on this was uh, Robert Jessup, who this would be his first credit as a cinematographer. And we continue to work in uh, low-budget movies it's throughout the 60s. He uh, did several of Larry Buchanan's films, but we continue to just kind of move up the uh, the uh, ladder, uh, you know, working on still B-films, but bigger-budgeted B-films. Um, he did some of Jack Starrett's movies like A Small Town in Texas and Race with the Devil, which has really great cinematography on that. That's just, he really excelled in that. He did the exploitation uh, uh, horror film Sugar Hill, and... Um, uh, Cotton Candy, which was an early made-for-TV uh, directorial effort uh, for Ron ha- from Ron Howard, who also brought him back to shoot uh, his TV movie Skyward. Uh, he did the uh, the Chuck Norris film uh, Silent Rage. He did the Jackie Chan film, Battle Creek Brawl. Uh, Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. He did Split Image. Uh, very, very talented cinematographer. Now, the thing about trying to judge the uh, look of this film is that it's not like something weird video was had the greatest uh necessarily necessarily had the greatest elements to work with i don't know if they even had film elements for this movie uh it's very obviously i mean it looks to me like a some kind of tape master that was used for this dvd and you know they they recently released this in collaboration with agfa released this four movie set um which all four movies on the set were from tape masters because that's all that literally existed of them anymore. There were no film elements anywhere. And I just wonder if these, these movies might be in kind of that same situation where maybe not, maybe some of them, but not, not all of them even have film elements anymore. So it's, it is kind of difficult to judge the look of this film. It's a movie definitely where you go into it. Don't be discouraged by the transfer that you might find of it because for now that's the best there is and could possibly be the best there ever will be. You got to kind of try to, you know, peer through the murkiness and the lack of detail uh, to kind of just imagine what it would like was it restored and what they were going for, and of course it's not you know in uh, you know the original aspect ratio, but again you, you take all that into consideration. And like I said before, outside of the set work stuff, the stuff that is um, like I said more on location, uh, some of the night nighttime exterior shots, you can definitely tell they were trying to bring uh, a nice sense of style. To what was going on versus the set work which again it's just really dead on shooting and it's very consistent I I, uh, I wonder if that was just uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that was just a time issue like they had the rent studios set space and had to get all the set scenes done as quickly as possible so move through it as quickly as possible which means of course the most basic setups they even though even with the even with the um, stuff shot on sets they still do manage to uh, uh, move in some nice uh, Nice shots here. There are some nice striking shots as well, but be that as it may. Now, if you look at the credits, uh, one of the a very interesting name uh, pops up as the sound mixer, and that is S.F. Brownrigg, and fans of cult film uh, know Brownrigg for his uh, later career as a exploitation movie director who gave us such films as uh, Scum of the Earth and Don't Look in the Basement and uh, Don't Open the Door uh you know had his own had his own uh success uh behind the camera and this was bu- earlier in his career when he was working in uh the sound department. Music score for the film uh I believe is all uh just you know stock music that they that they licensed. Sometimes um especially when they trying to sell Terry as this you know, like I said, this sultry vamp character. Uh they they kind of go for very cliched uh uh vampy music wah, 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 you know, like Peggy Lee kind of style stuff. Uh, well, I should say a stereotype of Peggy Lee because the real Peggy Lee is great. But uh, other times it's kind of more effective. And, you know, it's again, it's a low budget film. So they kind of had to, um, you know, in a situation like that they have to kind of like work within their budget and, you know, hiring a composer to uh, give a whole score might not have might not have been in the mix, so to speak. Now the movie was originally intended to be released as a double feature with another film titled Secret File Hollywood, uh, which starred Robert Clark, veteran B-movie actor Robert Clark. And if you find some old promotional materials, you can see uh, like campaign books that have these two movies listed as a double feature. I don't know what happened, but for whatever reason, Secret File Hollywood was held over till 1962. Uh, It was released by Crown International though. uh, Eventually I have seen that film. I definitely uh, recommend it as kind of like like another interesting oddity in their filmography. And also because it has a bunch of, uh, it has a few, uh, you know, cult movie and uh, just uh, cult movie and veteran character actor performers in kind of like early roles, like, um, Francine York and Bill McKinney, but yeah, I don't know why that that film was delayed for till the, till the following year. But they were intended intended as a double feature originally. But I I think if you've I think that this film, having watched prior to this Stark Fear and Fear No More, both from this weird noir set, I just really like this whole idea of like these films that have this noir or Uh, maybe on a broader term, suspense, uh, characteristic attributes to them, but are doing so in the framework of being, you know, very low, you know, very low budget, um, you know, very independently shot. Um, But again, they're, they're made by uh, all three of those movies, at least, were made by people who uh, were professionals and who uh, know how to, knew how to bring something interesting and intriguing and rewarding um, to these films, which is what you need when you're working on a low budget. You know, you, when you you can't just write a blank check for everything. Um, it's just all the more important to have everybody have their game on. And like I said before, you know, Stark Fear um, had Beverly Garland and Kenneth Toby. Uh, Fear No More has a pretty strong cast in it, if you ever get to check those two out. And this film has, you know, Irvin Berwick, uh, you know, kind of uh, bringing that uh, that energy that he kind of already showcased in Pietras Blancas. And um, relying on, again, even though maybe not every aspect of Jonathan the performance is top tier. He's entrusting him to basically carry the bulk of that character, of this Ted Tad character. And being a veteran character actor... Uh, with this rare opportunity to be a leading man, uh, you know, Kid does not let the film down, even if maybe not every aspect of his performance is where you want it to be every moment. Um, he doesn't fall apart when given the, when p- having a leading role put on his shoulders. I'd love to see these films, uh, you know, given a really good restoration. Again, I don't know if that's even possible, What what's left of the elements for these. Uh, but I definitely recommend recommend them and i look forward to checking out the three remaining movies on the set uh, like i said unfortunately the set is out of print um i other than stark fear i don't know if any of these other movies were ever released on any other sets or volumes but if you can't track it down you know or maybe it's uh streaming someplace um but this is one i definitely would recommend checking out for what it for what it does bring forth title's kind of misleading as someone, again, who grew up in a religious household, I'd like to point out that it's really the Sixth Commandment that this film's kind of more about. Thou shalt not kill. Uh, seventh Commandment's about adultery. It doesn't really play too much into the part here. Um, I'll also, it also, you know, the, we can't really ignore, like, I should take a moment to discuss the kind of, like, the proverbial elephant in the room, and that's kind of, like, the setup of the film. Probably should have discussed this a while ago, but I'll dive into it now. You know, the whole idea of Ted Tad being sent into this kind of state of amnesia through the trauma of thinking he's killed someone. I would say that that's probably you know not necessarily being someone who's studied psychology and trauma to the uh, degree that could render an expert opinion on this. I'd say that's probably would fall more into the unlikely category than the unlikely category to happen. Um, but even though that setup is not convincingly communicated. Because it's done so early in the film, and because so little time spent on it, there is a degree to which you can look past it. That is an area where, you know, I think they could have sold that idea better had they just spent a little more time with it, a little more nuance with it. You know, again, maybe even just having... Ted being conscious and thrown from the car after the accident and then waking up with a cop already having the amnesia and then thinking he's killed someone uh, instead of just having him kind of just like suddenly switch from being self-aware to uh, being this amnesiac. Uh, Also, I'm kind of wondering what in the world happened to his... I was about to say right before I recorded, I'm like, they can't figure out his identity. He comes across Noah after he's had this amnesia and they can't figure out what his identity is. They're going off the... uh, Again, I think they were his... His cufflinks or his coat had a monogram on it, something like that. But I'm like, did he not have a wallet with any driver's ID? What happened to that? I don't, uh, that, yeah, okay. (laughs) Because it doesn't say he was robbed or anything like that. It's just like, I guess he's just going out for a drive with no no identification on him. Maybe he's left his wallet back in her car. I don't know, but, but yes, the Seventh Commandment came out in December 1961. I liked it. I really liked it, as Mikey would say. Well, that will do it for this week's episode of Carpet City Cinema. Thank you again for tuning in, and please continue to uh, show us your love by giving us reviews, positive reviews, preferably, on whatever uh, platform you're listening to us on, um, and continuing to spread the word about our production. And notwithstanding any craziness in the schedule, we plan to be back next week um, as we dive into the month of October. Uh, talk about octoberthon and what that is all right everybody take care and we will talk to you next week